Hello, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Buddy Tangla Moody, and I will be your host for this episode of the Manmukti Podcast. The main thrust for today's discussion will be surrounding domestic violence in South Asian diaspora communities. And just a quick side note, I do want to take a couple of seconds to inform you guys that the content in this episode is fairly sensitive, hence a potential trigger. So please just be aware of that, and I hope you all enjoy. Yamna Sayed. Um, I am a licensed master social worker in New York City. Um, I am originally from California, moved out to New York for grad school, and I've made New York my home. Currently, I am working two jobs. I work with Saki for South Asian Women, which I'll dive into more later, and I also work at Adelphi University with their Institute of Adolescent Trauma Treatment and Training. Awesome. So, you know, social work, is that can you tell our audience if that relates to mental health in any way? I'm, I'm pretty sure it does, but just Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my, my focus in social work school was actually trauma, mental health, and substance abuse. So mental health is really my passion. Gotcha. So why are you here? Why are you with One Mukti, and why are you talking to me of all people today? <laughs> so I heard about One Mukti recently, and I thought it was such an incredible initiative, such an incredible... Uh, space that you all have created and so, so needed, you know, growing up South Asian and growing up, um, you know, in the United States, there's definitely a lack of representation that we grow up with, I think. And I, stuff like this, like, you know, resources like Manmukti are one way to, to change that. And I, I think it's so important that we're, we're doing this. Yeah. And I just want to touch on something you just said. You said there's a lack of representation when it comes to certain political issues. Why do you think that is? Um, I would say largely it's due to the fact that there is the model minority myth that affects Asian Americans in the United States and that, you know, really dates back to the 1960s and it's rooted in anti-blackness. So there's a lot there. Mm. But what happens then is that there's this idea that, you know, um, South Asians don't suffer or that Asians don't suffer. And, And I mean that in any multiple ways of, you know, whether we're talking about financially or when you're talking about health or especially now mental health. We're talking about there's this expectation that, you know, we don't fall into these issues, as someone might say, you know, we don't suffer from depression or mental illness. And that's absolutely not true. And when you're talking about the culture that we come from, it's very much rooted in stigma and insecurity and shame. And so I think we have this huge lack of representation because no one talks about it enough. I think that they don't realize that we need the representation or they don't see why it's important mm-hmm. um, because they don't get it, right? right. Um, and then, you know, coming from the, the cultural context, those that don't want to represent us or don't want us to have representation, it's often because they're trying to silence us. Right. right. Okay, so we're just going to jump into your, uh, your career here as you're a social sure. worker. So I want you to clarify to the audience and to me, shamefully, what a, social, <laughs> what a social worker, what a social worker actually does and what do you do specifically as a social worker? Okay, so that's a hard question. I'm gonna try my best. Um, so a social yeah. worker can do many different things. That's one of the things that drew me to social work is that there's a ton of different hats you can wear. My work as a social worker has been predominantly working with um, populations that have great needs. I initially uh, worked with homeless people and with people with substance abuse issues. And then I sort of fell into, as I say, uh, domestic violence and sexual assault advocacy work. Um, So I've worked a few different jobs in that sphere, working with different communities and most specifically working with the South Asian community and the Muslim community um, in a couple different positions that I've worked with. So 
that's my specific side of social work, but there's a ton of different things that you can do as a social worker, including, you know, policy work and policy advocacy, mental health and, and clinical work. Um, you can do, you know, broader level, like you can do research, which I'm working under researchers right now. So there's a lot you can do with social work. Mm-hmm. My specific trajectory has been predominantly like clinical work and, and working with uh, survivors of violence. And then now I'm sort of more on the research side. Gotcha. So, you know, being a social worker and just, you know, talking about the issues and the and the, that you confront on a daily basis, I'm assuming you deal with a lot of pretty harrowing stuff. Um, yeah. I want to know what, what kind of, like, being a social worker, what has kind of disturbed you the most? I know it's kind of, <laughs> I mean, I know it's a fairly morbid question, but I mean, I'm just wondering because... I don't know. Just dealing with all that harrowing stuff all day. I mean, it's got to take a toll on you, like stress-wise. So I just wonder what it what's does, just the yeah. thing that t- gives you the most stress, and something that you just find really worrisome about the commu- uh, about our society. Um, in general, I would say throughout all of my various experiences, I think the biggest thing that you that always sort of catches me off guard, even after all these years, is how terrible people can be towards one another, mm. um, and just how deep trauma goes, and how people don't understand trauma enough and the impact it can have um and that's really trauma working in trauma specifically is sort of my passion and so that's why i bring that up because so much of these behaviors that you see or um you know the clients that come to us like they have trauma and then even the folks that i worked with with you know substance abuse issues once you start talking to them you really hear about their lives and you hear about the different traumas they've endured it's very rarely that you encounter somebody that's you know, has lived a wonderful, perfectly happy life and then suddenly becomes, an, you know, a, addicted to a substance. Um, there's usually some sort of catalyst. And so I think for me, the, the most worrisome or disturbing thing that I've realized is just how terrible people can be to, to one another. Right. So touching on that, you know, there's a, this is a bigger question, I guess, but a lot of people say that, that that's just, you know, being terrible is part of human nature or whatever. I mean, it, it is a bigger question, but... Mm-hmm. I think it leads into I think it leads into the fact that sometimes you get cynical kind of do, doing this kind of work, and I say that because every time I see a social worker in a movie, I mean the NY yeah. is set into the point where they're so jaded they don't even give they don't care about anything anymore, and they're just they just feel like they're shoveling sand against the tide. And I want to know mm-hmm. how do you how do you, do you can you escape that feeling, and how do you do that? Self care, self care, self care, self care. Um, it's. I mean, people say you know try to leave work at work, and as a social worker, that's next to impossible. Mm. And anyone will tell you that. Um, mm. You know, we take our work home with us, we carry it with us, and um, I think the biggest thing is just really trying to surround yourself with people that will support you, that will listen to you. Mm. Um, I always say anybody that's in social work or in the mental health field should be also getting services for themselves. Mm. So being in therapy. Um, you know, even if it's something as simple as finding 10 minutes a day to have a cup of tea by yourself or, you know, doing yoga or going for a run, like finding, carving out time for yourself to do something that is good for you or makes you happy. That is the only way you keep from getting that, you know, to that point that you're talking about being jaded and, and not believing in the work that you're doing anymore. Right. And I want to go back to something you just said about self-care is that you, you advocate going to therapy. And that's mm-hmm. something that's an issue with, I mean, I would think that's an issue with social workers in general because they feel like they got to be strong, right? They got to be strong for the kind of issues that they're facing. Why do you think it's important for social workers to, to first of all, to, to try to get therapy themselves? Why, why is that important? Because you can't carry everyone's problems on top of your own without it taking a toll on you. And, you know, that's a large part of when you're talking about 
specifically the type of work that I'm doing, but even just social work on a greater scale, you are carrying the world's problems or people's problems and their pain, and it will affect you. Nobody is immune to that. And so um, I, in my experience in social work school and, you know, in getting my master's, they really do drive home that it's important to take care of yourself and your mental health. And um, one thing that's really popular and, and is pushed a lot in social work is supervision. And that's not therapy per se, but it's giving you that space to talk to, you know, your supervisor um, about issues that are coming up and to get advice from like an outside party. Um, oftentimes that's, you know, it's, it's very much focused on the work itself. So you talk about your clients and things that are coming up and, you know, I'm struggling with this client, what should I do? But there's usually a point where they, you know, you do a check-in and you talk about yourself as well. So that's like a very minor scale of it. And everyone, like in my experience, they always say, you know, like you really, if you're struggling and even just in general, like you should be going to therapy, you should have someone to talk to that's objective because you can only rely on friends and family to listen to so much. Right when you're carrying all these really terrible stories and sometimes people can't handle hearing those stories and that's okay, but then you can't bottle them up either. That's why it's so important. So I want to go back, actually go back to something you said earlier when you were describing mm-hmm. your work as a social worker. You said you work with uh, basically groups that are, basically groups that were probably the most affected. And actually I want to tell the audience real quick that Yamna and I had, before this interview, we had a pre-call and I mentioned an article that I had read that day and, and it was talking about mental health of refugees. It's just really just a downward spiral when it comes to these people. And, and, you know, one thing that I found slightly disheartening was that you can't really solve those mental health issues. You can only, you can only give people measures to cope. And you can only give people, and you can only pr- provide measures for people to prevent any, uh, you know, prevent any further diseases from happening. So have you encountered that ever, uh, working with the groups that you do? Um encountered what sorry to be specific you mean just like that spiral of trauma yeah just that downward spiral where it's just everything just seems to be going out of control just everything just seems to be feeding on itself the dad's not well the mom is not well the kids are not well i mean everything is just feeding on itself yeah yeah i mean so specifically in the work that i've done like i said is around domestic violence and sexual assault specifically and i can think of definitely multiple clients where it seems like things are falling apart on all ends and you know I'm thinking about specifically when I worked with um, children and was doing counseling with children, I can think of, you know, a client where I had the mom was the survivor. And, and this, is the, this is what happens. You know, the mom is a survivor of violence, but the children are too, whether that means that they've witnessed it or they've experienced it. So now you're talking about mom is not well, dad is not well because maybe because he's the abuser or whoever the, the abuser is, right? If that person is in picture, they're not well, the, the victim is not well. And now the children are victimized. And so they're not well. So then you see the impact of that in multiple ways. It, it doesn't just affect your mental health. You know, poor mental health then affects your physical health and your ability to cope with other things in life, just, sim- you know, simpler things that somebody else who's not struggling with mental health issues might be able to manage. So <clears throat> as Yamna said before, guys, she works with Sucky. It's, and uh, hopefully I get this right describing this. It's an organization that helps victims of domestic violence in South Asian communities. Am I right, Yamna? Is that, is that correct? Yes, yeah. So we work with domestic violence and sexual assault survivors, um, both women, like adult women, and then youth as well. Gotcha. So, you know, working with them and working with clients, what what do you think are the most common, or what, are you, what have you perceived to be the most common factors in abusive relationships? 
So all abusive relationships, regardless of what the background is of the abuser or the victim, they're based in the concepts of power and control. Mm. Um, and one of the most common resources that we always point people to, and I've, you know, I've shared, I share this with clients often, is something called the power and control wheel. And you can Google that, and it's, you know, and you can find it even for specific populations. Like there's one that I found somebody made specific to Muslims, and one that's specific to LGBTQ couples, um, but. In, in the essence of abusive relationships, it's about power and it's about control. It's about the abuser exercising power and control over their victim. Um, and that can be in any number of ways. And it's interesting with the South Asian or Muslim communities that I've noticed certain trends um, that maybe aren't as common in Western relationships, to put it that way. Um, you know, one thing that I've, I've encountered quite a bit is we'll have, um, I've had, you know, clients in the past come to me, Muslim women, and they've said, oh, well, you know, I'm married and um, my husband has, you know, he's abusing me and, you know, the cops have been called, they've been sent to the hospital, whatever the case is. And they say, okay, now I want a divorce. And so we ask, okay, when, where did you get married? And they'll say, oh, well, we did our nikah, which is a religious ceremony mm. in Queens. And that is a loophole gotcha. that a lot of abusers will use is that they'll do, because in the United States, your religious ceremony is not a legal not ceremony. A legal ceremony, that's right, yeah. So, whereas, you know, back home, your religious ceremony counts as your legal ceremony. Like in, in, in like Pakistan and Bangladesh, if you have your nikah, that's your legal marriage as well. Exactly. It's one and done. Yes. And so a lot of these women will come here not knowing that a nikah doesn't count. If you were to get your nikah done in the United States, that does not count as a legal marriage. If you had gotten it outside of the U.S. and then came to the U.S., it counts because it was legal there. And so then it's legal here. So what happens, unfortunately, is I've seen multiple clients where they come and they say, oh, you know, I, I did my nikah with this man in a masjid here. Or, you know, we, we did our religious ceremony at a temple here. And there's no legal aspect that's been involved. And so when they come and they say, I want a divorce and I want alimony and I want child support, uh, specifically in terms of alimony and any sort of damages uh, related to the abuse, we have to tell them you don't have any rights rights. unless unless they've been married for a long time and they can count as a domestic partnership. It gets more into the legal side of it. But, you know, I had a client that had been religiously been married to this man for like two or two years or so. And he, you know, he abused her very terribly. She ended up in the hospital, the hospital center our way. And when I met with her, that was one of the first things she said. She was like, I want a divorce and I want alimony. Mm. And I said, well, where, what, you know, where's your legal certificate of marriage? And there was none. So that's one thing that I've noticed is pretty common, unfortunately, mm-hmm. um, is that, you know, a men will come here, they'll have entire families back home and they'll remarry out here. And that's another thing we'll see the two marriages and they're not legal Mm. um because you can't have in the united states you know that would be considered bigamy if they were to get caught so there's that Mm. um another big one that we see specific south asian culture would be familial abuse Mm. meaning that the mother-in-law the sister-in-law the father-in-law are all involved in the abuse as well Mm. so do you think you know just going back to the whole power and control thing is it Mm-hmm. Is it like the, the the common? I guess I guess the common cause that I've heard a lot is that these people are exercising their power and control in their relationships because they feel like they're losing power and control somewhere else at their job, maybe or I don't know. Do, do you think that's that's the reason or? Um, 
yes and no. So it can be sometimes that some, some other outside factor is frustrating this person and they're taking it out in their relationship. Absolutely, that can happen. Mm. Um, but to, I guess, to make it the fault of whatever else is not yeah, accurate, I would enough. say. Um, you know, very much what we see so often is that an abuser has either you know, they've either suffered abuse themselves and then turned into an abuser, whether that mean as a hands of a partner and then flipping the script on a new partner, or they grew up in a home with violence. And with men and boys specifically, we see that about 90 to 95% of abusers that are males um, have grown up in homes with abuse. So it's what they've witnessed. It's what they've normalized. They think this is how relationships work. This is how marriage works. This is what I can do as a husband or the wife. You know, it goes both ways. Would you suggest anything to anybody getting married or anybody? Just are there ways to kind of preempt any of these harmful tendencies, like you know, getting into you know fights with your spouse that may result in physical violence or just emotional abuse? Even I mean, is there any way to kind of yeah. preempt these things? I mean, I guess the biggest thing would be you know to keep an eye out for those red flags, mm. and if something, I would say, I always say, trust your gut instinct. If something feels wrong, it's wrong. And so, you know, just the other day I was listening to the radio and somebody called in and was like, oh, I got into a fight with my boyfriend. He pushed me and he spit on me. Should I stay with him or is that abuse? And that is abuse yeah. Um, yeah. because it's just, you know, it's inherently disrespectful and he got physically violent with you. Like that's that's abuse. Um, you know, when you're talking about, yeah, getting into fights happens, but it's the degree of how the fight escalates um, or how the relationship works that matters. And so I would say, you know, look out for the red flags. You know, if, if, if your partner is controlling who you speak to or who you see or where you go, if, you know, there's, they're insisting that they be allowed to snoop through your phone, you know, to disrespect boundaries of privacy. Um, I think we see that a lot, especially in younger relationships and just the way that relationships are nowadays with technology. There's a lot of, you know, Oh, well I have his Facebook password and he is mine and I can read all his messages. And that's not necessarily healthy. Um, so I would definitely say that the, the biggest thing to prevent falling into an abusive relationship is to really keep an eye out for the red flags and pay attention to those. Um, it's very easy once you do get into an abusive relationship, you won't want to make excuses for the person that we see that all the time. Um, the other most important thing for preventing, you know, harmful tendencies or falling into the patterns is addressing them with, with survivors and children when they're young, because, mm-hmm especially when we're talking about children, the preventative work, such as the work we're doing at Sucky and specifically the program that I helped create, the Youth Empowerment Program, mm. is to break the cycle of violence. Because it is a cycle. You know, the kid grows up in a violent home, they feel, they feel this is normal. Right. So then they either go on to become an abuser or be, or become the victim in an abusive relationship because, well, this is what I grew up saying. This is how my parents were. Um, and so our goal is to break that by teaching them, you know, if you're angry, there are other things you can do. You know, you can cope in other ways. If somebody is treating you this way, you don't have to take it. Here's how to speak up. Here's what to do. Um, and that's really the, the most solid way, I would say, to, to prevent, you know, continuing the cycle is to do the work to break the cycle. So we're going to get into a fairly, I guess, probably the biggest topic for us, uh, for us mm-hmm. at Mukti, um, and something that you mentioned repeatedly is the stigma. And mm-hmm. I want you to kind of address the stigma that I'm, I'm, I, 
my own opinion is is that a lot of these victims of domestic violence probably do not want to come speak out about it because of because of the stigma they don't want to be singled out they don't want to be you mm-hmm. know they don't want to be the couple on you know Indian Jerry Springer I don't know just <laughs> yeah so just I mean I'm a, my own opinion is that they just don't come out they they don't want to be a sideshow they don't want to be you know circus freaks or whatever in their own communities and I, I want you well t- first tell me if my if my presumption is right and then kind of address the, if there is a stigma please uh, you know address it and and what happened like what are the repercussions of people who don't uh, come out and speak up sure um so i mean there's definitely a stigma right and like you said yeah there's plenty of reasons why people don't speak out including you know not wanting to be labeled right. um i think that's a large part of it is that so often in our cultures the functionality of a marriage falls on to the woman um, when you're talking about traditional heteronormative relationships, you know, the expectation is the wife carries the household, the wife maintains the family. And if something is wrong, it's your fault. It's a reflection on you and your failure as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what the stigma does, right? That's what it tells us. Um, so there's there's absolutely, I think, the reasons that you said and just other reasons, you know, being the fear of the repercussions. And we've, you know, we know in our culture, unfortunately, divorce or um, speaking up about violent familial violence is a huge taboo because there's this idea of you know what's what's family business stays in the family speaking up about it is then inviting non-family members into your family business um and i think that's something that we see a lot with a lot of the women that come to us that might not have left yet their abusive situation yet if they do at all um statistically speaking across the board not just in south asian culture but across the board it takes a woman on average seven tries to leave a relationship that's abusive and that's if she leaves if meaning either she decides to stay and never gets the courage to to really try again or she's killed Mm. so that's you know that's something we see a lot here in the united states and just across the world um, and so, again, when you're talking about stigma and fear, that's one of the fears is that this person might kill you if you try to leave. Mm. You know, I just want to address to the audience real quick just how bizarre the logic is of keeping family business within the family. That's also a principle that the mafia and the mob uses. So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's it's kind of funny that, that that's that's kind of a weird, that's the taboo. I mean, there's... I mean, gangsters are complete sociopaths, and they adopt the same principle. I don't know why you would apply it to families, but yeah, no, it's it's. it's I mean, it all ties to pride and honor yeah, exactly. in both cases. Exactly. Yeah, in both cases for sure. So um, we're gonna switch topics here, um, but mm-hmm. I mean, it's still in the domain of marriage. Um, so you mentioned to me, uh, like I said, I told the audience that we had a pre-call that uh, you've dealt with divorce. Um, mm-hmm. And I was I was just wondering, what have you learned from it in terms of maintaining mentally healthy relationships? It's a great question. Um, I think the most important thing is just you know if something's not working, like you need to talk about it and give it you know give it your best and give it a fair shot. But if it's not working, like you if you're even if it's just like a gut feeling, like you got to speak up on it because those gut feelings are usually not wrong. Um, and even if there is something coming up, there's a reason it's coming up. So. In my situation, you know, my ex-husband and I, we parted very amicably. It was a very nice, you know, cl- not say clean breakup, but, you know, it was, it was as far as divorces go, it was not messy, and I was very grateful for that. We remained friends, mm-hmm. um, and we're both, you know, doing well in our personal lives now. And it's, it, we recognize that we're very much the outlier. We're very much the exception, unfortunately, when it comes to divorce and, mm-hmm. and, to, and to breakups in general, right? Mm-hmm. Not many breakups end up 
friendly or well. Um, but I think part of that is that we were, we communicated and, and even in, in, in ending the relationship, there was communication that happened. We still tried to support each other and respect each other as individuals. And I think that's a huge part of, you know, like you're saying, maintaining a mentally healthy relationship. It really boils down to respect for yourself and for the per- the other person. And so, and also how have you kind of dealt with, I, I, I'm assuming i my own presumption is, again, is that divorce in the South Asian community has a particular stigma. Um, yes. Well, yeah, again, like, you can tell me if my percep- presumption is wrong or uh, right or wrong. And also, if, if it is right, like, how, how have you handled that stigma? Um, that's a tough one. <laughs> so there's definitely a stigma. Um, and it was a large part of my struggle in, in deciding about getting a divorce and figuring out if this is really what I wanted and needed to do is I definitely consider the repercussions of the stigma and what that brings. Um, I have two little sisters and, you know, unfortunately in the way that culture, our cultures work, there's this idea of like, well, if something is quote unquote wrong with one sister, then the rest of them are probably not okay either. Mm. And, you know, people want to create all sorts of stories and create their own versions of what happened because people like to gossip, unfortunately. And so I really had, I thought about it and I said, you know, if I get a divorce, what if it affects my sisters in some way and their, their futures? Um, and that was a conversation I did have with my mother. And thankfully, you know, she reassured me that that was not something I should be worrying about that, you know, I'm my own person and my sisters are their own people. And, and that's not something that should be impacting their life. And so I, I was very lucky to have the support of my parents. Um, you know, we talked about it a lot before we finally went forward with it and, that helped me get through it and, and to deal with the stigma. My mom was absolutely one of my biggest supporters throughout the whole thing. Um, actually, when I, when my husband and I split, we both ended up moving out of the state that we had been living in, um, which was, I was in California at the time. Mm. And it was nice, the gossiping and, and, and you know, finger pointing. Gotcha. And for me, I feel like that's what I had needed. I needed that little bit of an escape. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that time that I moved away, you know, people started talking and my mom eventually at one, we, they were at a gathering with a bunch of family friends and she stood up in this group of people. My sister told me the story. I my mom's never told me this, but, um, she stood up in this group of friends and she announced Yumna is getting a divorce. No, everybody is fine. We're all still like on good terms and that's it. I just wanted to address it before anybody starts gossiping. And then she sat back down wow, and everybody's faces were just kind of shocked um, because it, especially awesome. in our sort of circle of friends in our family in, in LA, I was among one of the first people in my age group to get married and everyone was really excited. Mm-hmm. And then for me to get a divorce, it was, I was the first person in, I, th- I want to say in our like family circle community group of friends to get a divorce. And then also in my, in my cousins I was the first person and so it was a huge shock to a lot of people Mm. so I think for me handling the stigma a lot of it was the support I had helped you know my sisters were really supportive my my brother was supportive and my parents were really supportive and that really got me through it um and even now and then you know I still uh, I'll go home and I'll hear people talking at an event or whatever and you just kind of have to turn the other cheek a little bit but Mm. it's hard um people the stigma that's associated is people treat you like you're broken. Exactly. Or something is wrong with you, like inherently wrong with you. And that's mm. not true at all. Mm. It's true. And people just can't mind their own business. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah. So, 
I would just want to give you the floor if you want to make any concluding remarks. Just, you know, to say anything about stigma or just anything that you're, like, any any issue that you're advocating for. Just just any concluding remarks that you would like to make. Um, sure. So, as I mentioned before, I work with Saki for South Asian Women. And um, we are coming up on 30 years. We're the oldest South wow. Asian serving organization in New York, um, in New York City. And yeah, it's great. Um, and so I think for me, one of the things is that, like I said, I sort of fell into the work of domestic violence. Mm. And it's really, really important to me. And it's really dear to my heart. And I would just say for anyone listening, if they've, you know, if they've experienced any violence, if they've witnessed any sort of violence, um, to reach out, you know, whether it be even to Saki, we get people reaching out from all over the country and then we try to sort of direct them where we can. Um, but reach out to the National Domestic Violence Hotline, you know, um, reach out to the various resources that there are. Um, with the National Domestic uh, Domestic Violence Hotline, you can call uh, 1-800-799-7233 and that's the number uh, for the National Domestic Violence Hotline and I would just say, you know, call them if you're struggling, if you need help um, because it's not something that you have to suffer through and it's not something that you need to, to deal with alone, that there is help and that's, I think, the thing I would say to anyone is, you know, reach out to Saki or reach out to the National Domestic Violence Hotline to find resources maybe local to your area um, but even if you reach out to Saki, like, we will help you figure it out, how to help you um, and that's really, I think, the big thing I want to push is that violence is not love. You know, mm. there is no love in violence. Mm. And unfortunately, so often abusers will twist their acts of abuse and say, oh, no, this I'm doing this because I love you. Mm. And that's just not true. It's That's not how you show love. And it's not something that anybody should have to deal with. Well, thank you so much, Yamna. You 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 dealt with me today, and then thank you so much for being <laughs> no Thank you so much for being on the Monday podcast. No problem. I appreciate it. A very very special thanks to our lovely guest Yamna Syed for featuring in today's episode, and a shout out to our podcast team of Abhijit, Anand, Ashley, and Shama. Guys, if we could just take a moment to ask for a little bit more of your time and love to rate our podcast on iTunes or shoot us a review, we greatly appreciate it. And if you want to continue the conversation with us, visit our website at manmukti.org or connect with us on social media. We'll see you next time.